Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with Bob Farrell, the CEO of Global Trans. Bob, welcome to uh, Fuller Speed Ahead. I think it's the first time we've had you on. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I've I've been on What the Truck with some of your friends, but uh, not on with you. So great to be here. Yeah, uh, likewise. Great to have you. Uh, you ha- came into the industry a couple of years ago uh, and uh, were a part of building Global Trans into uh, one of the most uh, one of the largest and uh, most innovative companies in the space. Tell us a little bit about your background. You were a healthcare guy, if I'm not mistaken. No, actually, I, I'm 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 technology guy. Um, uh, prior to being the CEO of Global Trans, I was the CEO of four different software companies, or in one case, a platform company, which was great. That was a great match for Global Trans. Since since uh, Andrew Leto founded Global Trans back in 2003, it was a very technology focused company. And um, in 16, we really sharpened that focus even more. And everything we do, we do through a technology lens. And I know everybody says that, uh, but we we actually try to walk that talk. When you talk about technology, is it helping customers be more efficient in how they route freight? Is it building deeper uh, digital matching? Where is the majority or the focus of the company in terms of technology? So it's really all of those things. Uh, first and foremost, I would say particularly over the last 12 months or, uh, you know, really 24 months, our, our customers have focused more and more on looking at our technology to provide them with a solution to get their SKUs closer to their customers, where they need to be, when they need to be there um, at, at the right time. So creating technology that uh, really facilitates all that. So for Global Trans, what's that, what that means is that we've had to evolve our TMS uh, to be not only really strong in the back end of things and in our ability to match uh, shipments to carriers and to provide all the, the back office operations that a 3PL provides, but to offer the, 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 the front end shipper the opportunity to do data analytics, to use AI to, to drive optimization, to look at new ways to move the freight, to really consider things that could be done to their supply chain to uh, maximize the turns in inventory to um, really create a financial environment that gives them a, a competitive and operative advantage. I would say that um, you know, right now, so much of what we're doing is is data driven and having analytics, uh, not only for reporting and dashboarding and those kind of things, but analytics to dr- drive decision making in real time and to do things like digital freight matching, um, a big part of what we're doing. Now, is Global Trans is historically, or at least, has been an active participant in the agent agency model, <clears throat> an agency market. But I understand that there may be uh, uh, you guys are are really uh, organically building uh, your your own operations. Is is the agency model a key part of growth, or is it the goal to really bring a lot of that uh, those resources in house? So we 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 have a hybrid go to market. So we do, as you said, go to market via uh, an agent channel as well as a direct channel. In 2020, about 40% of our gross revenues came from the agent channel and 60% from direct. We love both models, uh, particularly during the pandemic. Having an agent model really gave us a cost variability that uh, that was nice to have and really allowed us to power through without having to do any any reductions or, or anything like that. But we think there's value in both both models. Typically, um, although not always, but typically our agents are focused on the SMB market. They're they're dealing with customers that are local to where they're where they're based. 
Um, often they're people that they go to church with. They're people that their kid their kids are on the same soccer teams, and they build these really deep and tight relationships that are very sticky and last for for a long period of time. So you know those agents are using our platform. Um, they're they're using uh, our visibility into capacity. They're using our our back office to to drive all their business, and it's a very important part of our growth, and it's a very uh, uh, important part of our business today. On the direct side, it's a little bit more enterprise focused. Um, in recent years, the most significant growing part of that direct business has been our managed transportation capabilities. So today, we have over five hundred million dollars in freight under management as a four PL, and uh, some of that we do the three PL work on, and some of it we don't. Um, and so those are really kind of different businesses, and um, those channels coexist very well. So, Bob, when you think about the future of the industry, there's been a lot of talk of consolidation. Uh, Global Trans has been a key contributor and beneficiary of the consolidation in the market. Are you guys still actively doing uh, consolidation and acquisitions? Absolutely. So uh, growing through acquisition is still a strategic pillar for us. Um, at the moment, we actually have two LOIs out. Valuations are are becoming more and more challenged. We've got uh, a lot of private equity out there with a lot of money to put to work, and we're private equity owned ourselves. So, you know, we're supported by uh, by our private equity partners, and they're anxious to help us do accretive acquisitions. I think there's a lot of value in scale. When when you look at the truckload side of the of the of the business, uh, which for us is about sixty percent of our business. Um, Getting visibility on that capacity across a broader base um, really allows you to serve customers better. So when we, when we acquire or consolidate in a truckload brokerage or somebody who has a truckload brokerage as part of their business, it just expands our capacity across the whole network. Uh, from a technology perspective, we spent a lot of time to make sure that anybody who we acquire can immediately get visibility into into that uh, into that capacity. So. I think that uh, this will be a pretty robust year. There are a lot of deals out there being run by bankers, and there's a lot of deals out there where uh, you know folks who have been in the business for a while are you know perhaps looking to, to create liquidity, and and they're open to having sort of one-on-one discussions. Where we look at acquisitions from three perspectives: one, are companies that we can consolidate into our business model, so we move their customers onto our platform. We move their back office to our back office. It's very consolidation-oriented play. The second are more transformational acquisitions, and those are ones where we'll bring in a new mode, we'll bring in a new capability. In May of 17, for example, when we acquired logistics planning services, that was the start, really, of our managed transportation capabilities. When we acquired services in January of 20, it was an addition to that. And then the third category is actually acquiring our agents. When our agents... Uh, are looking to retire or looking to do the business differently than they've been doing. Perhaps they've gotten bigger than uh, than they ever wanted to get, and, and it's an opportunity for them to create some liquidity. We'll look to acquire them. Um, so we're pretty active and, and look forward to uh, trying to drive some deals here in 2021. Now, you mentioned that you're looking at deals right now. Um, any uh, sense of or anything you can share with us on those particular deals? No, obviously we're under you know NDA for for anything that we're looking at specifically, but but um, you know there are um, a lot of good assets out there 
that for one reason or another, they're at a point in their cycle where they're either looking to change uh, private equity ownership. You know, the, the original PE is looking to to uh, create liquidity. Uh, you've got uh, a lot of founder, many times family-owned, three PLs out there where um, the the ownership is is ready to retire, and there's no family members ready to step in, and those represent opportunities. Um, and then there's others where, uh, you know, they're just feeling the effects of being smaller and how much more difficult that is in terms of on the LTL side, getting access to rates. Um, you know, LTL carriers are um, reducing the number of 3PLs that they're working with. And for smaller 3PLs, that can be a challenge. So by bringing uh, or consolidating a business into a global trans, they get to take advantage of our, our scale on that front. So, um uh, I, I, I think that, um, there's a number of deal dynamics out there and, um, uh, uh there's going to be some good opportunities. Have capital gains changes come up in any of the conversations? Are you seeing founders that have built substantial, uh, enterprises say this may be the year to take some money off the table because I don't know what's going to happen to tax, uh, the tax law next year. So I haven't heard that specifically, but I have to imagine if I was one of those individuals, I would be thinking about that. Um, So, you know, I I don't know where things are going to go. But, you know, if the first digit of the of the new capital gains is a four, uh, that's a that's a major change. Even if it's a three, it's a major change from what we've uh, what we've had in place now for some time. So I would imagine that if anybody were considering doing anything in the next couple of years, now would be a time to accelerate and um, try to take advantage of uh, capital gains as as it is today. Yeah, just to quick math, if it was a $100 million uh, business in terms of capital gains and you were to sell it this year on December 30th, assuming the tax law changes next year, you're talking about a $24 million tax bill versus sell it next year and you're talking about a $40 million tax uh, bill. So it's a significant delta. Uh, and then, of course, you have state taxes. So I can imagine founders are certainly looking at that. We'll probably see a lot of deal activity at the end of the year, assuming that there is a capital gains change, which is, is certainly uncertain. But what what is it about particular businesses when you're looking at acquiring these companies? Where, where do you guys really focus on and try to understand how this business is going to fit? And where do you put a lot of value in a potential transaction? Well, we, we start with a cultural review. And I, I know that sounds kind of soft and loose, but the reality is if in the first meeting that we have with somebody we, that we can't imagine bringing these companies together and you know, forget about the details, but just can you imagine how you would integrate these two companies together, how the people would get along what the core values are, how, how you operate the business, what matters. If we can't ascertain those kinds of things right out of the gate, then we're, it, it's going to be hard for us to want to spend any money or time on, on, on looking at, at the deals. Uh, the second is uh, technology and how, how much technology have these companies used in running their businesses to the point that they're at. In some cases, when the answer to that is not so much, that can be good for us because it's an opportunity for us to bring our technology to bear on, on these businesses and to, you know, perhaps find a way to improve efficiencies and productivity uh, right at right out of the gate. In other cases where the other player has significant technology and has done some innovation, 
that can be hard because uh, technology integrations are known to be a killer of M&A and, you know, not and oftentimes a dissynergy versus a synergy. Um, so we look at that early on. Uh, we look at the customer base. You know, what kind of overlaps do we have in the, in the customer base? What kind of model do we have? Are we using a carrier carrier sales model, a buy-sell model, or are we using some dispatch model? Or are they using some pod model? Um, you know, how much of their business is actually done digitally, 100%. So, you know, LTL, it's always very simple. And 95% of that is is automated and, and uh, has been at Global Transfer for a while. On the truckload side, um, you know, we're continuing to inch up in terms of how much freight doesn't actually get touched by anybody. And, um, you know, and that's a mindset. So if you've got uh, a business where a lot of people are making a lot of commission and would potentially be in a position to lose some of that commission because of digital freight matching, uh, that could create some some challenges in, in, in gluing the businesses together. Now, how do you look at the digital freight brokers or the digital natives? Because I know everyone is digitally enabled, certainly Global Trans is, as a company, a digitally enabled, enabled company. But there have been a certain class of digital brokers that have raised money at uh, really high valuations. How do you look at those uh, uh, in terms of what their future would look like? Uh, because at some point, the market is going to value them on exit. And how do, how do you think of that sort of disparity between traditional uh, private equity valuations, which may be on the upper end of things, uh, versus a company that doesn't make money and still is valued quite highly? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we hold those we hold the Uber freights and the convoys and the transfixes and all of those guys in high regard. I mean, they've done a lot of innovation and they've sort of forced the issues with the let's call them the incumbents the global transits the echoes the ch robinsons of the world and um you know we see them we see them on the landscape and and you know uh heretofore they have really not focused on doing business profit profitably uh they've bought a lot of business um you know with the idea of creating a uh, creating a footprint and using technology later on to kind of Kind of, kind of drive efficiency that I guess will allow them to become profitable. So I think they're a fixture here. Um, I think if you looked at the amount of digital freight uh, matching that is that occurs with some of these incumbents, uh, the total of that freight is way more than what all these so-called digital freight matching companies are doing. Uh, so we've got the freight. Um, you know, in many cases they've had the technology. And that that gap is kind of kind of kind of crashing down. So I, I, you know, we're in the business of making money. They're in the business of raising money. Um, it's it's quite different. But at some point in time, that that needs to change. So we coexist, particularly in some large enterprise shipping accounts. Um, I think that some of them have a lot more capacity than they have freight, and um, that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, you know, we uh, we've rolled out our mobile app. To carriers, so that uh, you know they can do a lot of the things they do with those platforms. Um, it's a lot cooler to do it on one of those brands for a carrier, right? It's you know Global Trans or Uber. I mean, like the we, we don't have the Uber brand, but we've got the Uber functionality. So um, yeah, I think they're here to stay, and I think that uh, at, at some point they got to figure out how to make money. I think the real question is. Where, where does profit, gross profit, get driven in this business? So I don't think this goes the way of the stock market, where you've got you know uh, a 
999 trade. I mean, 20 years ago, you would have spent a lot of money to trade stocks. And, you know, now you can trade any amount of stocks for, you know, 10 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever. Um, you know, moving freight is more difficult than that. Um, appointments get missed. Trucks break down. There's labor issues, uh, so on and so forth. So um, the question is, how can you maximize automation so that the only cost are, is on the exception basis? Um, I think that will drive margins down over a long period of time. And I think those that can match an ability to serve with a high level of process automation are the ones that are going to really win. Yeah, I, interesting point you make because Robinhood, effectively, that's just digital. It's clearing settlement and digital matching uh, in a financial market, which you know has a very low cost of transaction. Uh, whereas in freight, there's a lot of exceptions that uh, take place on, on a shipment, and there's a lot of human involvement uh, and hands that are involved in it. Um, where do you think that we're going to see the most margin compression? Is it the highest volume shippers? The really dense lanes, is that where pressure is going to come? Uh, is it other parts of the market where we'll see uh, some level of margin compression in the space? I think in the short term and medium term, it is going to be those high volume shippers because they're the ones that have the more consistent freight, the more predictable freight. Um, they're, they're the ones who are already pressuring margins through RFP processes that are sometimes pretty pretty difficult. And it really forces, um, you know, those who have the technology to make sure that they have uh, the capacity from a data perspective built in and access to without anybody having to make a phone call and say, do you have a truck? Um, so I think it does start on, on, on the top. But, you know, we we think that um, you know, with every lane that we start to build out, if we can get to you know a certain level of density, um, we will be able to operate on a lower margin. And, you know, this is going to evolve over time. Um, and I'm speaking specifically to truckload here, of course. Um, um, and, and I think you already see it with some of these, these large shippers. And they're coming to 3PLs now. Uh, they're, they, they're, they want to have fewer vendors and they want people who they can rely on to, to bring, uh, you know, really effective cost to the table. Is it is it visibility that's really driving a lot of their desire to consolidate vendors, uh, having the ability to have one platform or just a few platforms that they can get all of the data from on shipment status? Or is there other efficiency gains that they hope to, to get uh, in choosing fewer vendors? Uh, I think it's a little bit of all of those things. Um, when you choose a vendor who also brings a sophisticated optimization capability to the table and a planning capability to the table and a dashboarding capability to the table um, that just naturally will want you to put more freight through that. We have some customers who, even though they're not using us for the 3PL piece of all of that, uh, are loading all of their data into our platform so that they can get some level of visibility across the entire spectrum. And that's not a man. That's a solution, but not a managed trans solution because they're not giving it all to us. They're not asking us to be a 4PL, um, but they like the technology and, and the particularly on the optimization side and um, uh, on the visibility side. So I think that um, if you can deliver that, you can take on more freight. Uh, and if you have that, all of those capabilities, you will be able to get the capacity uh, into your system that allows you to serve those customers better and and to take on more lanes. And, um, you know, since I've been around here in 2016, 
we were always challenged in, in, in those earlier days around, man, if we, if we bid on all those lanes, we're going to get killed because we don't have any density there. With technology now, we're, more, we're able to more quickly get that density built. What is your message to a small, uh, maybe a, a brokerage that has, you know, half a dozen people, maybe a dozen people where they're not small enough where they can be agile and sort of, you know, as you mentioned, the relationship basis, the, they got a church, it's their uncle that runs, you know, the traffic department at a, at a shipper, but then they don't have the scale to bring technology. Should those guys be looking at, would your recommendation be looking at exit or how do they, how do they survive in a world where, you have to have a large level of sophistication or you have to really be sort of on the inside of that relationship to, to be able to sustain things. Barring any unique niche they may have, um, I, I would say that, you know, and this is a little self-serving and it's the beauty of the agent model is that uh, you, you can join a, a, a company like Global Trans or others that have an agent offering and operate on that platform and still have all the benefits of being a small company operating the way that you want to operate, creating a subculture the way that you want to create a subculture, being your own boss, all those kinds of things. But you're operating on a platform that that gives you uh, access to all those things that uh, you just can't afford to have as a small brokerage. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I It's interesting because I, I do think we'll see a lot of consolidation over the next couple of years in the space and mid the mid-size uh, uh, freight brokers, are, I think, are going to struggle unless they are very differentiated and sort of control a niche that has a lot of human involvement. I think you have to uh, – the highly commoditized freight, I think, is always at risk of of, uh, of just getting consolidated both in margins and in volume. Uh, Bob, what's next for Global Trans? Uh, I imagine that your investors are looking at capital markets. Uh, it's certainly even for a small company, we're much smaller than you guys. It comes up in our board discussions quite a bit about how do we think about – uh, capital markets and sort of the next stage. What about what's what about global trends? Are we going to see a public offering or a SPAC offering in the next uh, twelve months? Yeah, so I I, I actually had firsthand experience of uh, moving a company through a SPAC process. A company that I've been on the board of for a few years went went public via SPAC earlier this year. Very interesting scenario. Um, you know, I don't think uh, global trends in the short term is going to look at uh, look at the public markets. Uh, I think there's still a lot of runway and opportunity for us to use private equity to continue to drive growth and to create value. Um, uh, you know, things can change um, always, right? You know, the, the markets are always, always changing. Um, it, it's it's an interesting discussion. You you can't you can't have a capital markets discussion and not have SPAC a SPAC discussion come up because it's you know so popular. Uh, maybe a little less popular now, but um, it'll it'll it's here to stay. And um, you know, for us, uh, you know, we want to keep driving our business in a way to maximize EBITDA. Um, and you know, as we do that, we create great free cash flow, and that is a great uh, way for private equity to continue to invest in us. And I and I think for the short term, we'll just keep continue to look at uh, look at PE as a way to to drive things forward. You think we'll see an active SPAC market in the logistics industry? Do you think we'll see three PLs uh, go through SPAC? Uh, I I would just assume by sheer numbers we should expect one to happen. Um, you, you know I don't know that uh, there's been any SPACs created with the specific mandate uh, around doing three PLs. Um, you know, it's it's a tough business to be public in. 
particularly the more truckload you have, you have some cyclicality there. And having been the CEO of a public company in the past, um, you know, you like to have those quarters in the bag and, you know, have that recurring revenue that you can count on. This this business isn't exactly like that. And if you draw a line for growth over a five-year period, I think you're going to be really happy. Um, but if you look at it in 2019, for example, you you in that period, you won't be so happy. Um, so I don't know. Uh, you know, there's, there's some great public companies in our space. Um, you know, C.H. Robinson, Echo. I mean, those are great public companies. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, um, uh, you know, there's certainly, I know, and I've heard, you know, in the, in the scuttlebutt that, uh, there's companies thinking about it. Um, we're, we're not thinking about it right now. I think anybody who's raised capitals talked to SPACs, at least one SPAC sponsor, if not dozens. We, we certainly have had our conversations with them because you, you have to consider it. I mean, the amount of capital that's gone into it, uh, and the valuation delta between the private market valuations and SPAC valuations almost forces a conversation whether you want to have it or not. So it's going to be interesting to see how it works out. You make a really interesting point. I mean, the asset guys uh, are always under pressure. When the market's good, that means drivers are short. And so that creates significant pressure on the asset side. But on the brokerage side, it's that margin compression with just what part of the market that you're in that plays havoc on the predictability of your profit margins, which can be a significant issue. Well, I think that's where uh, companies like Global Trans need to work on their mix and uh, their modal mix, um, because I think that the dynamic that you just um, referenced is more of a truckload phenomena uh, than it is uh, anything else. And if you can have a strong managed transportation business where um, you know you essentially have some recurring type revenues that are volume based um, or subscription based. That are that will you know give you sort of some predictability, and then an LTL business that also typically has fairly consistent margins and fairly consistent uh, volumes, you know that can balance off uh, tr- a, a truckload volatility. And you know, having all of those things make you a valuable solutions provider to your to your to your uh, to your shipper customers. If you don't have that truckload capability, you're not going to be able to do everything that they need. So mm-hmm. you got to you got to handle that volatility within the mix of business that you have to sort of flatten things things out. I think that um, if you look at the history of global trends anyway, we've always been able to sort of power through and grow in excess of the market during some of those volatile periods because there's opportunities that get created when some of these smaller brokerages or even middle-sized brokerages you know, can't power through that volatility from a capital perspective. And if if you have just a little bit more scale uh, and a little bit more consistency, you're going to be better positioned. And, and that's kind of how we think about it. Yeah, well said. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'd love to have you back and uh, we'd love to invite you to F3, the Future of Freight Festival in Chattanooga uh, this November. Hopefully we can continue this conversation then. And you know, I'm sure we'll see some big announcements between now and then from Global Trends. We're certainly going to try. Thanks for having me on, Craig. Best of luck for the rest of the year. And also, you can get tickets to F3 in November. Sign up today on the website. The tickets do get slightly more expensive uh, at the end of the every month. So in May, uh, the price will go up uh, a little bit. So, But we'll see you there. It's going to be the uh, freight party of the year. 